Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we continue on through our study in the book of Galatians. And this morning, we're in the second section here of chapter 4. Last Sunday, we looked at 1 through 11. This Sunday, we're looking at verses 12 through 20. There's um, sort of a bare bones outline there on the back of the worship guide, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as we move along, kind of get your bearings. It'll certainly be helpful if you've got a Bible open in front of you as we move along so you can see the passages as, uh, as we talk about them. Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Uh, early on in, in our time in Maine, when I was pastoring there, I was, uh, was going to meet another pastor for lunch. He was a pastor with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, if you've heard the name J. Gresham Machen, who was at Princeton Seminary and then helped start Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, or John Murray, uh, those, those guys were part of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and that church is still thriving in New England in particular. So I was meeting this pastor from, uh, from the OPC, and uh, he's from Scotland originally. Um, and I remember, you know, when I would meet guys, I still do this, if I've never met them before, I'll usually give them some qualities about myself so they can recognize me. I try to get places early. And so I can usually say something like, well, I've got a beard and I'll probably have a laptop out and I might have this shirt on or whatever. So I can give them some of that stuff so they can recognize me. Well, I didn't do it with him. And so as I'm sitting there in the lobby, kind of looking around, I realized the reason I didn't do it is because somewhere in my head, I thought, oh, well, he's Scottish. So I'll, I'll recognize him, I guess. Not thing. I mean, he's not going to wear a kilt. I don't know exactly what I was thinking. I mean, the, the, the distinguishing characteristic in that kind of situation is, is the way somebody talks, their accent. But when you're sitting there waiting in a restaurant in the Olive Garden, nobody's, nobody's talking. So anyway, praise the Lord, we kind of we found one another. Uh, but, but there are certain defining qualities that, best case scenario, that, that I would have given him and, and he could have been looking for. Okay, well, well, what qualities does true Christian love have? That's what Paul's dealing with in our passage. He gives these qualities of gospel love. So if, if we had to describe gospel love to somebody so, so that they could pick it out of a crowd, how would we describe it? Well, we, we gather that from what Paul is writing here to the Galatians this morning in this section. He's giving us some, some of the main qualities of gospel love. So with, with that sort of big picture understanding, Hear the word of the Lord, Galatians 4, 12 through 20. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. He's talking about the false teachers around Galatia. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Okay, so a couple things up front, just to get our bearings, remind us about this situation with Paul and these Galatian Christians. So he's the one that had started these churches in the region of Galatia. So we read about that in Acts 13 and 14. You could go back this afternoon, read those two chapters and kind of remind yourself of of the situation here where Paul had preached the gospel to these non-Christians. They become Christians. Paul does what he always does, which is to form local churches and then to disciple them and then to move on, preach the gospel other places. But he never forgets about those converts in those churches. He writes letters back to them or he tries to come back through and visit them and continue to encourage them. So that's what this letter is about. And in the meantime, after he established those churches and discipled them and then he moves along, these false teachers had moved in around Galatia. And you remember what these false teachers were saying was that Paul's gospel, which is Jesus's gospel, was not the real gospel. It wasn't sufficient. So the false teachers were saying, yeah, Paul tells you that you can become right in God's eyes. Your sins can be forgiven through faith alone in Christ alone, not by working hard, not by trying to clean yourself up, not by certain ceremonies. No, mere, simple, faith alone in Christ alone. The false teachers were saying, that's not enough. 
It's faith in Christ plus some good works, plus having the male members of your household circumcised, like the Old Testament says, through uh, uh, participating in certain holy days, the calendar of the Old Testament, among some other things. So they were saying Paul's gospel is not the real gospel. But see, for, th for them to make that point effectively, they needed to try and undercut Paul's credibility. So we learn from the letter, because Paul's in the, in the position of having to defend himself some here. It's not just the false teachers were saying Paul's logic is bad. They were also saying Paul's motives are bad. So they were trying to undercut Paul as much as they could to get these young Christians to trust them, the false teachers, not trust Paul. And that's the kind of thing where Paul on his own merits, he doesn't care about that. Paul doesn't care about his own reputation. But the time where he does is where he knows it affects the gospel. So he knows that they're undercutting Paul because they're trying to undercut the real gospel. And that's when Paul is going to fight, he is going to get upset because he doesn't want anything to keep people from the one true gospel, which is what these false teachers are trying to do. So, so Paul here, in part, he's defending the gospel by defending his character. But really what he's doing, he's giving one more piece of evidence for the one true gospel. And what he's doing here is he's pointing to the kind of love that the gospel produces. That's what he's doing here in this passage. And this is relevant for us as, as members of Cornerstone Baptist Church because it tells us what our love should look like. Okay, so what should characterize gospel love? What is it we're aiming for? How can we recognize it? Well, in our passage, Paul gives us at least three qualities of gospel love. This is the way we'll look at the passage. It's listed there on the worship guide. So first, gospel love is self-forgetful. We'll talk about that. Second, gospel love tells the truth. And finally, it celebrates growth in Christ. The three main things we're going to see in this passage. But, but real quick, before we get to the first point, let's see how Paul sets up this section for us. Look again at the first verse, verse 12. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Okay, so remember, these churches have a large population of Gentile Christians, which just means a non-Jew. So if somebody's not ethnically Jewish, they're a Gentile. So that's a large, uh, a large part of the Galatian churches. And remember, the false teachers are telling them they basically need to become Jewish in order to be part of God's people. Get circumcised, keep the holy days, uh, uh, obey the Old Testament law, act like me is, is basically what, what they're saying. But but Paul here is kind of doing the opposite. He says, when it comes to the Old Testament law, act like me, not like the false teachers. Act like me. He says, become as I am. So remember, Paul himself was Jewish, and he had been part of the strictest sect of the Jews, the, the Pharisees. That was Paul's background. But he'd come to understand that when he became a Christian, he was no longer under the Old Testament law. He was now under Christ. So that law, we've talked about this a lot. The Old Testament law had a temporary function, and now that Christ had come, that temporary function was completed. So the way we talked about it last week, it's like scaffolding. That was the Old Testament law. It's the scaffolding as the building gets built. But once the building's built, you tear down the scaffolding. You don't need it any longer. If anything, it's an eyesore. No, it was just there to get you to the building. That's what the Old Testament law did in terms of Jesus. The Old Testament law was there to get God's people to Jesus. And now, it's no longer necessary as a way to be made right with the Lord. So, so Paul's asking these congregations to follow his example. He understood we're no longer under the law. So he says, follow my example here. And this is part of Paul's responsibility as a leader inside of Christ's church <coughs> to set this example. So the New Testament's clear as believers, we're all supposed to set a good example for one another. That's a responsibility all of us have to try to set an example to encourage the believers around us. But those who hold an office in the church are especially responsible to set a faithful example. So, so we're told this about deacons. This is 1 Timothy 3, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So part of God's design for deacons is that is they believe the gospel and live it out it encourages the rest of us in the gospel. It encourages us in our faith in Christ. So deacons are supposed to set that example. 
Well, same thing, as, as church pastors or elders, those, those words are synonymous in the New Testament, it's the same way. We too are supposed to set an example. So writing to church elders in 1 Peter, the Holy Spirit says this, he says, be examples to the flock. So as pastors, there's four things that the New Testament tells, four broad things that it tells me and Pastor Charlie and Pastor Mark and Pastor Tim that we're supposed to do. So we're supposed to lead the church. We're supposed to teach the Bible. We're supposed to pray for the church and we're supposed to set an example for the church. Now, obviously no human pastor is, is gonna be a perfect example. We're reminded of that in 1 Peter 5, when Jesus is called our chief pastor, our head pastor, 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter 5 tells us. So he's ultimately the one pastoring us. But underneath Jesus, part of the job description of church officers is to set up a faithful example so Paul's leaning on his own example. He's telling the Galatian Christians to, to follow his lead from moving out from under the Old Testament law as a way to be made righteous with God and, and trusting alone in Christ alone as the way for, for somebody becoming right in God's eyes. And again, he, he goes on to, to give them yet another reason to turn back to the one true gospel. He points to the kind of love that the gospel produces. So, so here's our first main point this morning about gospel love. Gospel love is self-forgetful. First thing Paul points out, gospel love is self-forgetful. The kind of love produced by the one true gospel is a love that thinks of others a lot and thinks of oneself very little. That's gospel love. Look at what Paul reminds the Galatian Christians about in the middle of verse 12. He says, you did me no wrong. He's talking about his initial visit there. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached to you the gospel at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul's talking about when he initially ministered to these churches years before, he, he talks about his condition. You know, my condition wasn't a trial to you. So what's he talking about there, my condition? Well, Paul evidently had some sort of physical malady it looks like it was probably his eyes. We have a couple, a couple clues for that. So in chapter six, verse 11 of Galatians, he's talking about how he wrote the letter himself. So he didn't use a scribe, he didn't dictate it. He wrote it himself. And, and he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So the thinking is, okay, Paul had to write large so he could see it. That might be what he's saying there. So maybe it was a, a problem with his eyes. He could also be referencing this in our passage in verse 15, when he says the Galatian Christians would have given Paul their own eyes if, if he had needed them. So he might have had a problem with his eyes that affected his vision. It could be something else, some other malady, but there was something about Paul that he was struggling physically. And what it meant was the Galatian Christians had to care for him in more particular ways. So he was a bit more of a burden, at least in terms of earthly terms, when he was there with them. But verse 14, this is the way they responded to him in that situation. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So these young Christians had welcomed Paul in and, and they had loved him faithfully with whatever was necessary in this particular situation that, that he was in. Of course, it was an inconvenience practically but see, that's the kind of love that the gospel produces. The gospel makes Christians self-forgetful. So the, the Galatians, practically, they, they were put out by the love that Paul required, but they didn't care about that. Now, that's so different, isn't it, than the way things work in our world, the way that the world thinks about love. So our world is all about quid pro quo. So you do this for me. That's a, fat, a fancy Latin term for you do this for me and I'll do this for you but I'm not gonna do this until you do that good thing. That's one reason, interestingly enough, it's one reason by, why uh, famous people are always talking about how lonely their life is. I've heard somebody talk about this that, that has fame or that is really wealthy. They say that's because they never know who their real friends are because all the time they're having to question, is this person wanna be around me just because of what they get, because of the fame, because of the money I have. But that's how it works in our world. People usually love based on what they can get in return. And that's exactly the way the false teachers were operating. Verse 17, 
They, talking about the false teachers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So the, the false teachers, they were heaping praise on the Galatian Christians. They were, they were sort of buttering them up. In fact, that Greek phrase, they make much of you, there's, there's one word that's, that stands in for the phrase that we have here in English. That's the phrase that was used of a man trying to get a woman to marry him. So trying to butter her up, giving her compliments, trying to win her. That's what the false teachers were doing here. They were complimenting these young Christians, but they had an agenda. They weren't trying to do good to them for no reason. No, they wanted to do good to them to get good in return. Look at the second sentence of verse 17. They want to shut you out that you make, may make much of them. So remember, the false teachers, their whole deal was that the Gentile Christians shouldn't be considered part of God's people until they do some of these things the Old Testament law requires. The false teachers wanted to shut them out of God's people to say, no, you're not really part of God's people. We want you guys to recognize that. You're on the outside. But what Paul points out is the motivation for this. They wanted the Gentiles to be shut out of the church so that then the false teachers could be the ones to open the door and to say, yeah, all you have to do is these couple of things. Get circumcised, recognize holy days, some of these other things in the Old Testament. And then they could get the credit, the false teachers, for opening the door and bringing those people in. And then the Gentile Christians would say, oh, we're finally part of God's people, and it's all because of these false teachers. And they would get the credit. Verse 17, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So the false teacher's motivation was the praise they would receive from other people. And it's easy for us to sit here and to think, oh man, shame on them, right? What a horrible thing that, that they would do just for people's praise. But can't you relate to this? You know, aren't you tempted to perform certain good deeds in part so that you will receive praise, not from God, but, but from other people? So think about a few questions. Are you more likely to do good if somebody else is watching? So just think about this example in particular. So I've, I've usually got a handful of receipts that are rolling around my car from the gas station maybe in particular, and I'll stick them down there in the cup holder, and then the hope is that I will throw them all away and sort of batch it all at once. Well, you probably had this happen. You open your car door and a receipt flies out, right? Okay. So if that receipt flies out and let's say your neighbor sees it happen, you're probably going to chase after that receipt, right? Because you don't want your neighbor to see, oh, he's just letting this receipt blow away, this trash in the neighborhood. Are you as likely, this is a silly example, we'll get to a more substantive one, but are you as likely to chase down that receipt if nobody is out there watching? I think for a lot of us, probably not. We operate a different way if we know that people are watching. Well, to the, to the more significant, if, if a fellow church member has a practical need that you could step into, are you just as likely to serve that member if nobody is there to see it versus if other people are there to see it? Are you a little bit more likely to do it if other people are there to see it? Or if you've got to decide between two nonprofits to write a check to, and you know that one of those nonprofits, those gifts are all anonymous, but the other one, actually post your name among other people's names who gave. Are you a little bit more likely to give to that second one? That you could have some recognition so your name could get posted there? Or when you do a good deed without people seeing, do you oftentimes find yourself cleverly being able to mention it to somebody else later? In a way where it, it doesn't look obvious or you hope it doesn't that you're trying to mention your good thing, but just practically where you find a situation, you create something where you can mention that good thing you did for that other person. Those kinds of inclinations, that comes standard with the human heart. We all have that. In this way, we all kind of do what these false teachers were doing, but, but don't forget what Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But see, this is exactly what the false teachers were doing. Their love wasn't for the good of those Christians. Their love was for their own good, for them to be built up. They acted in order to get something back. 
Worldly love is self-focused. But again, gospel love, the opposite. It's self-forgetful. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Okay, so what's he talking about here? You, you might remember this, but the Greek word for angel, that literally just means messenger. So sometimes when you see angel written in the New Testament, sometimes it's just talking about human messengers. It's not always talking about angels from, from heaven. And of course, this is God had sent Paul to the Galatians. He had a special message given by the Lord. Now, God's not in the, the business of sending apostles in that way any longer. We taught that in Ephesians 2.20, where we're told the foundation of the prophets and apostles has been laid. So that's why in this church, we, we don't have apostles, we don't have prophets, that foundation has been laid. No, we have other officers, but, but not those. But the end of verse 14 does apply to us today. Paul says that they received him not only as an angel, but as Christ Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean? He's commending them. He's saying, you welcomed me as Christ Jesus. So what's that mean? It doesn't mean that they thought Paul was Jesus. No, obviously that's not what it's talking about here. No, what it means is because Paul was a Christian, because he was connected to Jesus through faith in him, the Galatians received Paul like they would receive Jesus if Jesus was standing in front of them. And this is exactly what, uh, what our reading was talking about this morning, our congregational reading. I'll read it again. This is Matthew 25, 35 and following. You might remember, this is talking about the future day of judgment when Jesus returns. And it talks about how he'll separate people into two categories, the sheep and the goats. The sheep are his followers, people that will end up in glory with him right after that judgment. The goats are those folks that are his enemies. And you remember the really scary thing is a lot of those goats think that they are sheep. It's a good thing for us to remember. And so he's separating them. Listen to what he says, Matthew 25, 35 and following about us welcoming Christians as if we're welcoming Jesus. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. He's talking to his sheep. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? So they're saying, okay, Jesus, you're saying that we did all these things to you, but we didn't see you and we didn't do any of these things to you. You know, because of course the vast majority of Jesus's followers have never seen him in this life, right? He ascended to be with the Father. It was only that very first generation of Christians that ever interacted with Jesus in an earthly way. So they're saying, you say that we gave you food and visited you and gave you clothes. When did we do that? Jesus, we've, we've never seen you on this earth. This is his answer. And the king, Jesus, will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So you see, he's saying the same thing that Paul is saying here in our passage in Galatians. He's saying the Christian is so closely connected with Jesus. And this is talking about Christians. That's why he says, the, uh, to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The Christian's so closely connected to Jesus that the way we treat Jesus's brothers is the way we're treating Jesus. He, he has those things equal one another on the balance sheet. The way we care for Christians in need is the way we are caring for Jesus. And that's the way that we're supposed to think about it too. So when a fellow church member has a practical need you're supposed to respond to that member as if it's Jesus who has that practical need. Isn't that something? That'll change the way we do things, won't it? We're supposed to respond as if it's Jesus that has that practical need. So, so some examples. If Jesus had a, a prohibitive medical expense, did you guys know that medical expenses can be pricey, can be expensive? So if Jesus had a prohibitive medical expense, and you had the opportunity to help, what would you do? I think we all know what we would do if Jesus had that need. Okay, well, do that for your fellow church member who has that expense. See, that's the way we're supposed to think about this. If, if it was Jesus that could use help watching his young kids one afternoon to get some work done, 
and you could step into that need, what would you do? Okay, well, do that for your fellow church member with that need. If Jesus couldn't get to church on Sundays because he couldn't drive himself here and you have a car, what would you do? Well, do that for a fellow church member who's unable to drive to church on Sunday morning. And these are all, you guys probably put it together, none of these needs is hypothetical. These are all literal on the ground. We have members who have these particular needs. So if you hear that and you think, okay, I feel compelled to step into some of those needs. I think I could do one of those things or some of those things. Then come talk to me about that or email me and we can figure out how you can care for that member the way that all of us would seek to care for Jesus if it was him in that particular situation. Look at what Paul says the Galatians would have done for him. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's intense, isn't it? You would have given me your own eyes. Now he's probably speaking hyperbolically there. We know that's not something you can do, especially not in the first century. Maybe that's a thing that can happen these days, but couldn't happen in the first century. You can't give your healthy eye to somebody else and it function. But he's getting at, hey, this is what gospel love looks like. It's radically self-forgetful. You need an eye? Oh, I've got a healthy eye. I'll give you my eye. Gospel love is radically self-forgetful. And, and that kind of love might sound daunting to lots of us, probably to everybody here. But, but I think the path to get there in a lot of ways is pretty simple. It's not easy, but, but it is pretty simple. The trick to thinking of myself less often is to think of Jesus more. I think that's really the key to this. To be self-forgetful, to think of myself less, which goes completely against my sinful flesh. The trick is to think about Jesus more. So when we would fly, when we lived in Maine and we would fly, they charge you for bags now. They've done that for a while. So you can't take just unlimited bags any longer you, unless you've got a lot of money. So you, you try to fit it into a couple of bags. So we would take two big bags. There are so many people in our family. Those bags are supposed to be 50 pounds or less. So I'll tell you what, there was always some trepidation and some nerves when we are standing there, when the ticket gal or guy is weighing our bag. And so one of us was usually trying to wrangle kids and the other one watching there would turn and say, oh, it's 48.5, you know, or whatever. And then we would say, praise the Lord. But I will tell you, there were times where, especially in Kentucky, coming back from Christmas, because Maria's parents love us and they love to give us things, there were times where we're pulling stuff out of one of those bags and giving it to her dad and he's saying, I'll mail it to you, or we're saying, we'll pick it up the next time we're here. Because there was only so much space in that bag. Okay, well, well, there's only so much space in us in terms of focus. We can only focus on so many things. And I think what we'll find is, as we begin putting more Jesus in the bag, it edges us out just by definition. The more we're thinking about Jesus, the more we've got Jesus intake through reading his word, through praying through him to the Father, through having conversations about Jesus with other believers, through reading books that help us understand the Bible better. The more we do things like that, the more we turn our focus to Christ, we're just by, necess uh, by necessity having to put some of ourselves out of that bag. We're gonna focus on ourselves less. So I think that's, that's probably half of it, focus more on Jesus. But the other half is to believe Jesus's words that good deeds done for a fellow believer are good deeds done to him. So what he just told us in Matthew 25, what we see here in Galatians, they welcomed Paul as if he was Jesus. If we believe that math, that will help us to do the same. But again, what Paul wants the Galatians to see is that the kind of love the false teachers have for them isn't the kind of gospel love that Paul has for them. Gospel love is self-forgetful. Okay, but the second quality, gospel love also tells the truth. Verse 16. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So again, the, the false teachers, they're trying to get the Galatians to look at Paul as their enemy. And it looks like one way they were doing it was, hey, you guys, Paul only has bad news for you. He's the one who's coming to you and is saying, hey, don't listen to this false gospel. Don't do these particular things. Don't get circumcised. Don't obey these holy days. If you do, you're not believing the real gospel 
So they're sort of framing him as the bad guy because he's the one that says negative things. Now, most people would, would frame that as a negative message. And, and the sinful human heart usually doesn't want to hear negative messages. So just think about the, the kind of messages of politicians who win the presidency. So I'll do one from both sides that were decades apart. Think about that positive message, if you were alive, that Reagan had, it's morning in America. A lot of us remember that. That was a positive message, wasn't it? He did pretty well. He rolled along in that election. We like positive messages. Or Barack Obama's, yes, we can. Same thing, a positive message. Sinful human nature will usually shy away from a negative message. And the false teachers were saying that's all Paul had. He just had a negative message that wasn't fueled by love. But Paul's point is that the one who loves you is the one who will tell you the truth, even if it's hard to hear. The one who loves you is the one who will tell you the truth. So the doctor who loves his patient is the doctor who will say he found a spot that could be cancer. Not the doctor who ignores it because it's bad news. No, that's not loving. No, the loving doctor tells the truth. The, the person who loves his neighbor is the one who will tell him, hey, I saw somebody snooping around in your backyard the night before. Now, that's not a positive message. That's something that, that can sort of shake somebody and make them feel like they're in danger. But it's loving to tell somebody the truth. The, the parent who loves her child is the one who will discipline that child for breaking the rules. And the Christian who loves his fellow Christian is the one who will tell him the truth, even if it's not fun to hear. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's love that was motivating Paul to warn the Galatians about the false gospel. He, he wanted them to be kept spiritually safe. And if the Christian loves his fellow believers, he'll do the same. Gospel love tells the truth. Flip a page over to Galatians 6, verse 1. There at the tail end of the book. This is what Paul says there, Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul's talking about pointing out sin to one another inside of the church. If somebody's caught in any transgression, point it out. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. So, so why in the world would Christians do it? It's because we love one another. It's because we love one another. We know that sin is dangerous. Notice again in chapter 6, verse 1, notice the verb Paul uses. He talks about somebody being caught in transgression. That's what sin does. It, it catches us. When, uh, when Jude and I throw baseball in the backyard, we've got a bunch of uh, evergreens back there, but there's some thorns back there. And so yesterday the ball rolled underneath, and we had to be really careful. Well, honestly, Jude had to be really careful. So I send Jude into those situations, but he's a good boy. But he's got to be careful because those thorns entangle. As soon as it catches your skin, you try to get out, and it just catches more skin. That's trouble. That's what sin is. It catches us. It's dangerous. And therefore, when somebody we love and who we are responsible for in the family of a local church, when somebody in that category seems to be caught, then out of love, we point that out. We say things like, Hey, brother, hey, sister, I've, I've seen you do this particular thing several times now. Help me understand how that fits with what we see in Scripture in this particular spot. Let, let's be sure that you're not sinning against the Lord here. Let's be sure you're not caught in transgression. And of course, Paul didn't invent that kind of truth-telling love. This is Jesus, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. This teaching didn't even originate with Jesus. Here's part of our Old Testament reading from this morning. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke, so fussing at one another, pointing out sin. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And that last verse really fits perfectly with Paul versus the false teachers. Because they were profuse in their kisses. They were profuse in heaping praise on the Galatian Christians, telling them they were great. But in the words of verse 17, they were making much of them. But that wasn't motivated by love for the Galatian Christians. It was motivated by self-love. 
those false teachers had for themselves. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. But as far as Paul goes, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so the question for us as believers, okay, gospel love tells the truth. So the question for us is, out of love, are we willing to wound our friends in this church? Are we willing to do that for one another? Out of love. Now listen, there, there's a few reasons why why you should not point out sin to a fellow member in the body of Christ. First of all, it may not actually be sin. These are all sorts of reasons to go slow when, when we're in a situation where we think maybe we should do this. Point out sin. First of all, it might not actually be a sin. So Romans 14 gives us a category for Christians disagreeing about certain opinions in the Christian life, but, but things that God hasn't come down on where he tells us this is definitely sin and this is definitely righteous. And so Christians just kind of have, have to make a decision about those particular things. So, so you should only point out sin to a fellow believer if the Bible clearly calls that behavior sinful. Second, we don't want to point out sin unless the person is definitely participating in that sin. So it could be hearsay. It could just be your best guess. But no, we don't do that. It, it needs to be verified that the sin is actually occurring. But finally, and maybe this is the one that we forget, but finally, don't point out sin in a fellow member if you don't love them. That is always a good question to ask. If you see a fellow Christian struggling in sin, and you think, oh, is this a situation where I should pursue them, where I should point this out? If you don't love that person, do not have that conversation. In Galatians 6.1, we're told we're supposed to point it out in a spirit of gentleness. Of course, we need to have love to be able to do it in that way. And of course, the entire reason we're supposed to approach one another is because of love. So you need to have love for someone before you go to them and try to point out sin. Okay, so the, those are some good reasons to not point out sin, but I think the main reason that most Christians don't point out sin in other believers is different from all of those. I think most of the time believers don't point out sin in other believers just because it's uncomfortable to do it. I think we would all say that. That's the reason that we usually shy away from it. We think, oh, this brother or sister, they're going to get mad at me. It could strain our relationship if I do this, if I tell them the truth. It, it'll probably make me look holier than thou in their eyes. They'll think I'm judgmental, that I think I'm better than they are. You know what's interesting about all of those reasons? They're all self-focused. Isn't that something? All of those reasons are preserving comfort for me. They're all focused on me. They're not focused on the other person. They're all focused on me. But see, that's not true love. Gospel love is self-forgetful, which means that it motivates us to do what's best for others, no matter the consequence for us. So we're supposed to be truth tellers. Gospel love should produce that in us. And, and that's especially significant when our truth telling affects the spiritual safety of a brother or sister in Christ. And that's exactly why Paul has been telling the Galatian Christians the truth. He knows there's no more dangerous thing in the world than a false gospel. So when these false teachers were saying the way to be justified in God's eyes is through faith in Christ plus good works, Paul understands they're adding to the gospel. But see, as we've seen in Galatians over and over again, the Bible makes it clear as soon as someone adds to the gospel, they lose the gospel. It's just like a combination lock. Most of us probably haven't used one of those in a while unless maybe you've got one on your shed. Most of us probably used one in high school. You might remember, but a combination lock, there's three entries, right? Three different numbers that you put in there, and then the lock opens. We might think to yourself, okay, well, if I put the three numbers in right, surely I can add a fourth entry. I already got the first three right. What's the big deal if you add a fourth one? Well, if you remember how a combination lock works, it resets the lock at that point. That lock's not going to open. That's the gospel. There is a single entry to the gospel combination lock, and it's repentant faith in Christ alone apart from works, if you add another entry like circumcision or loving somebody well or taking the Lord's Supper or church membership, it will reset the lock. You will lose the gospel. Paul's been at pains in Galatians to show us that's the way this works. If we add anything to the gospel aside from faith in Christ, then we will lose the gospel. 
Believing that lie will lead to spiritual death. That's why in verse 12 of our passage, Paul is entreating the Galatians to turn back to the one true gospel. He knows that that every person's only hope is to believe in the gospel. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, that's your only hope too. That's really the only thing that we have to offer you, is to tell you the truth in this way. That it's the gospel of Christ, it's the only thing that can cover your sins. The only thing that can make God your father, that can get you out from under God's judgment that you deserve because of your sin. And so the answer is to come to Jesus. Trust in Christ alone to pay for your sins. Come and, come and talk to me about that if you're willing to talk more about the gospel. Or send me an email, we can set up a time to, uh, to get together. Paul doesn't want these young Galatians to turn away from the one true gospel because he loves them. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Gospel love tells the truth even when the truth is difficult to hear. And that's really just a subset of the final characteristic Paul gives in our passage. Gospel love is most concerned with growth in Christ. So so if you really love your fellow church members, the thing you want most for them, the thing you'll be most concerned with is their spiritual growth. Look at verses 18 through 20, the end of our passage. Paul says, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Paul really lets us see his heart here, right? He compares himself to a mother. He calls the Galatian Christians his little children. And that's not only because they're Christians. There's an added pastoral piece, because remember, Paul had planted these churches. So Paul was sort of like a, a spiritual father. He feels responsibility to these young Christians. They're like his children. And we understand that illustration, right? Many people in this room have had children. Every person in this room has parents that you came from. So we all understand that, that illustration, that bond, that connection of care between a parent and their child. And that connection is one that's costly, especially on Paul's side, he says. In terms of his efforts for the Galatian Christians, look at what he compares it to. Verse 19, my little children for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth. So the task Paul's pursuing for the good of the Galatians is most closely identified with childbirth. I praise the Lord till we have five kids. I was able to be in the room when all of those kids were born. But I've seen Maria go through difficult things other times and have various levels of pain. But childbirth is where I saw Maria make faces that I've never seen her make before and breathe in ways that I had never heard her breathe before. So all of those things, it was, it was very different. Childbirth is painful and long and laborious. Well, the task Paul was pursuing for these young Christians, it, it was all those things too. So what was this task? What's the main thing Paul was working for, for these young Christians under his care? Verse 19 again, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So what Paul wants more than anything else, the reason he's willing to go through the pain of childbirth is to see these young Christians growth in Christ, which just means he wants to see them look more and more like Jesus. He wants to see Christ formed in them, he says. Now, now as we close, we are people with lots of concerns, right? And we have lots of earthly concerns. And by that, I, I just mean concerns that come around in this current life, concerns that don't follow us into the new heavens and the new earth, things that only have to do with this world. So health concerns and family concerns and money concerns, things like that. We have lots of concerns in this life. But what we see here is that out of love for one another inside the body of Christ, we should be most concerned with one another's growth in Christ. That should be our chief concern. Verse 19 again, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. If you've got a Bible open, flip over to 2 Corinthians 4, which is gonna to be to the left there. 
2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to read verse 16 and following. In, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul's been talking about the practical difficulties of his earthly life. He talks about getting beaten up and all these difficulties and this persecution. But look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, he's talking about his body. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He's talking about his spiritual life. Our inner life is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means they'll go away but the things that are unseen are eternal. Okay, so like we just talked about, we have earthly concerns. Paul talks about that here, but we also have eternal concerns, things that have to do with our soul, with our spiritual life. Now, now it's easy to really focus on the earthly concerns. It's like Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, we can see them. They have to do with our outer self, where we can see those things. So so when your fellow member is in chronic pain, you can see that. But, but when your brother in Christ has a, a, a rebellious child, maybe, you can see that. Those are external things. But we can't really see the inner self. You, you can see the effects of somebody's growth in Christ, but, but you can't really see that growth. Only God can see the inner self. So it makes sense. It would be far easier to focus on the earthly concerns of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what's amazing about the New Testament is how little it focuses on those earthly concerns. Just hold that as a category as you read the New Testament. You will be surprised, I think, how little the New Testament focuses on our earthly concerns, the, the concerns of the outer man. So as far as our passage goes, Paul isn't in the pains of childbirth for the Galatians to be physically healthy. He doesn't say that, does he? Or to have good paying jobs or to have enjoyable time with his family. No, he's not in the pains of childbirth for those earthly things. He's in the pains of childbirth for Christ to be formed in them. He's aiming for their spiritual health. He's working not for the things that can be seen, but for the things that are unseen, for believers to grow in their trust in Jesus and for that trust to continually transform their lives. And that should be our chief concern for one another too. So, so when your fellow church member gets the troublesome diagnosis from her doctor, you should definitely want her to be healed. We pray for that, right? We wanna to work toward that. We, we want her body to be firm. But much more than that, you should want her faith to be firm, regardless of what happens to her body. And the reason for that is simple. Our, our bodies, our physical earthly life will only last for a number of decades. Our souls will live on for eternity. And the only person who's going to avoid eternal death and get eternal life is the person who's holding on to Jesus as their only hope. The person who is having Christ formed in them. One more flying illustration. When we fly, I always ask Marie, it's usually the last thing I'll ask before we leave the house. I always ask if she has her driver's license. Now I could ask about a lot of different things. There's a lot of things that we wanna take with us on that trip to Kentucky, let's say, right? But I ask in particular about her driver's license. Why? Because you can't fly without your driver's license. If we forget an iPad, we can still get to Kentucky without the iPad. It will be a more difficult journey, I will tell you, but we can do it. We can get to Kentucky without socks. We can get to Kentucky without a phone charger, but we can't fly without a driver's license. So it makes sense that we'd have more interest in whether we have our driver's license or not. Listen, your brothers and sisters in Christ will make it into heaven just fine with a body that was chronically ill or with a bank account that had a zero balance the day that they died. But nobody is getting into heaven without gripping to Jesus. So hopefully you can see why we simply must have that as our greatest concern for one another as members of Cornerstone Baptist Church. There's nothing more important in the universe than Christ being formed in us. So think about that. 
Think about it as, as sort of some diagnosis questions, diagnostic questions rather. So which excites you more with your fellow believers, the good of the outer man or the good of the inner man? Do you get more excited about a brother in Christ getting a promotion at work or with that brother growing in some sort of spiritual category, maybe leading his family better spiritually? Which one makes you more excited? Do you ask your fellow Christian sister more about her level of pain or about what sins she might be struggling with that you could pray for her or where she needs spiritual encouragement? Remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. Of course, we, we want to care about the physical too, but, but we care more about the inner man. We care more about growth in Christ. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Final things, two practical things. You might wonder, how can I cultivate this kind of care for my members' spiritual well-being? Well, first, pray through the directory for one another. That member directory that we have, it's actually up here underneath the pulpit. So come and grab one if you don't have one. Pray for one another, whether it's one person a day or a handful of people a day or a page a day. Whatever's achievable for you, especially at first, pray for one another in the directory. And when you pray for one another, try this. Tie those prayers to what you're reading in the Bible. So what you're reading devotionally, if you read this passage, let's say, and you're praying for Tim Martin, Instead of praying, God bless Tim, which is not a bad thing to pray, sort of a general thing to pray, but press in a little bit more. And instead, if you're praying for Tim, pray, Father, for your glory, grow Tim in the kind of love we read about in this passage, the kind of love that is self-forgetful. So see, you're tying the things the Lord wants for us, things in his word, to the way you pray for one another. That's a good thing to do. And second, Ask your fellow members what you can pray for for them in terms of their growth in Christ. Try doing those two things. I think that'll help. Inside of our church, our, our aim isn't to see one another made more rich or more healthy or to have a more satisfying family life. Our aim is to see one another made to look more like Jesus. And it's this exact kind of love that we see on display in our passage, the kind of love that's self-forgetful, and tells the truth, and is most concerned in growth in Christ. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we're so thankful for this genuine kind of real love that the gospel produces. Um, Father, we want to have more of this love. We understand that, that our sinful flesh will buck against it, but we're so thankful that we have your spirit, and we have your word, and Father, you've created this new man inside of us. You've given us new life. And you promise to continue to renew our inner life. And Father, we pray that you would do that in this situation, that we would be marked individually and as a church, as folks that have this kind of gospel love that is self-forgetful and tells the truth and is most concerned with one another's growth in Christ. Take a few moments to pray for those things uh, silently and individually that the Spirit would press them in on your heart. Take a few moments to, to pray that now to yourself.